Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and is peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through three episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject and interview experts in the field. The September 2016 issue is devoted to the microbiome. The September issue, as well as all past YJBM issues, is currently available on PubMed and is open access, which means that anyone can check out the reviews, research, and perspectives that we have in this issue. Today, we have our second installment in our three-part series on the microbiome, where we will be discussing some of the articles published in the issue in the current state of the field, both at the bench and at the clinical bedside. I'm your host, Helen Balenson, a third-year graduate student in immunobiology. And I am Erica Gorenberg, a second year in neuroscience. Joining us today, we have Dr. Martin Kriegel, a rheumatologist and assistant professor of immunobiology here at Yale. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kriegel, and thank you for being our inaugural guest. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I guess we'll start off kind of off the bat with uh, how did your interest in the microbiome start, and c- if you could possibly discuss some of your research with us. Sure, I'd be happy to. So it started many years back when I first got interested in mucosal immunology as a postdoc in Richard Flavel's lab here at Yale, when I was interested in understanding the um, phenomenon of T-cell energy. And that's a certain tolerogenic state that in, in vivo in a, in a host or in an animal uh, represents oral tolerance. So we were studying, studying a mouse that was lacking a certain factor of this um, phenomenon and found that then oral tolerance was abrogated. And that made me think about also all those microbes in the gut were orally ingested antigens um, reach the host. Um, and that was just the beginning. Then as a um, clinical fellow in Boston at the Brigham Women's Hospital, where I trained in rheumatology, I went back in the lab uh, of Dr. Diane Mathis and Christopher Benoit's laboratory at Harvard and studied the microbiome in more depth in an autoimmune model for type 1 diabetes. Awesome. So, so today, are you still working in that field? Or how has, how has your research now changed from um, or got impact from your past research? So I heavily study the microbiome, and uh, specifically in the field of autoimmunity. But I switched from the work in Boston, which was focused on type 1 diabetes and organ-specific autoimmune disease, and I'm studying now systemic autoimmune diseases like lupus or um, antiphospholipid syndrome, which um, affects the whole body. Um, but but it, it, it was interesting already back then in Boston to study sex differences in this um, diabetes model. While this was not translating to humans, uh, in, in humans we know that the rheumatic diseases are sex biased. So I found it interesting to study the different microbes in male versus female animals, and now we're studying this in, in humans as well. Not necessarily the sex difference, but sex biased autoimmune diseases like lupus. That's really interesting. So... Uh, getting into a little bit more about the microbiota field, what is, do you think, the biggest mi- misconception about the microbiota that the public and science has? Yeah, so I think, uh, as in any new field, it's the hype um, of this being the big fix. It may take much longer than the public thinks to really get down to the individual uh, treatment targets and, and advances in, in clinical medicine. There have been a lot of progress done in the last few years, but while the microbiome is much more malleable than the ge- human genome, um, and the genome, human genome project was already a great success, but it takes 
a lot of effort to get to treatments there, and that's a fixed genome. The human microbiome is very uh, um, malleable. It changes with your diet and with environmental factors. That makes it easy to target, but at the same time, I think uh, quite hard to specifically develop treatments in the long run, but hopefully we're getting there. Yeah, so kind of connected to that, do you think that uh, the amount of antibiotic use that's used in the hospital, do you think it has some sort of extra effect because of its effects on the microbiome that we haven't figured out yet? Or is there any information coming out on whether we should dampen the use of antibiotics, maybe not have Purell everywhere, especially throughout schools with kids who are still kind of developing and Absolutely. And not only in the hospitals, it's well known that primary care physicians often, unfortunately, still prescribe too often antibiotics, sometimes because also the patients always request something, even if it's a viral infection. But we, we overused antibiotics, there's no question. At the same time, I, of course, want to make the point that it's been a revolution, vaccinations, antibiotics. Uh, we, we have, you know, been dying at age 30, 40 in the uh, old days and now live that long because of the um, new advances in antibiotics and uh, similar treatments. But but yes, we use too many uh, of these, and um, that is the first step probably to improve our so-called dysbiosis in microbiomes of today's societies um, by trying to avoid antibiotics when they're not needed. But we still need to make sure we understand when, when it's really necessary to treat an infection with an antibiotic. With this whole discussion of uh, antibiotics and microbiome, in the clinic, would you consider the microbiome to be a separate organ of the body? And do you think that in the future, potentially, there will be doctors who specialize in the microbiota, like cardiologists specialize in heart health? Uh, um, the second question is very interesting. I don't know. But the first, definitely, I personally feel uh, it should be considered an organ, just like the immune system is an organ, but it's hard to pinpoint to a single physical anatomical region because it's spread out throughout the body. But the uh, microbes that live, especially in our gut, uh, are a metabolic organ for sure. It aids us in digestion and vitamin production, and it has immune maturing functions. And same with the microbiota on our skin or other surfaces of the body. They should essentially be considered an organ. It's not quite there yet, but people in the field, like uh, Jeff Gordon, a leader in the field at uh, Washington University, agrees with that too. He feels it's considered an organ. But in terms of your question, sorry, yeah. about the um, potential future shift in specialties, one being a specialist in microbiome, I would love to see that happen, but um, uh, clinical medicine is quite, you know, um, specialized in the organs and the host, so it will take some time and a mind shift to get to there, but that's an interesting idea. So what, what kind of... Um what do you think is the biggest hindrance to the translation from the bench to the bedside that we currently have? And what do you think would be something that would be really helpful in helping the transition of kind of more information on the microbiome and more treatments via the microbiome in the clinic? Yeah. Um, well, the, the biggest hurdle is the complexity because it's it's, it's such a vast number of, of microbes. And within the microbes, there's a vast number of genes that outnumber our genes in the host. And um, in addition, these microbes, just not like the genes in our body, they can change over time. So they can acquire through evolution new mutations or gain new functions. And that makes it difficult in each individual to know what each microbe even does. I mean, if it's the same species, there could be strain level differences. So that's one challenge. Um, I think we need definitely much more basic research. And there's already a lot of translational research going on, a lot of surveying of microbiomes of all kinds of disease states. That is helpful, but it should always be coupled with mechanistic studies 
uh, either with patient cells or in animal models or even further down to the culture dish to really uh, get to the details, um, to really develop treatments that are then specific and not off-target. Along that line, um, we, we, you know, you've discussed a little bit about what needs to be done, um, but what kinds of techniques do you think would help move the field forward um, you know, to help us fill in those holes? Yeah. I think um, bacteriophage therapy is an interesting, pretty understudied um, approach that may target specific bacterial communities. Vaccinations definitely will also be much more specific than antibiotics, but novel antibiotics would be another area that's emerging where microbiologists develop antibiotics that we've never used or tested on, on commensals, but only on pathogens. And the whole fecal microbiome transplant is very crude in my view because you give the whole transplant of a microbiome without knowing what else is in there. We currently just characterize often the bacterial communities, but there's viruses, fungi that are co-transmitted. So we need to be more refined with that. And there's, there's some progress, especially in, in a certain infectious disease called C. difficile colitis, where we're trying to get down to very specific microbes. And with me, I mean the, the leaders in that field that study this disease. But a long way to go in all of these areas. Yeah, so I guess you, you just pointed out one of the pitfalls of fecal microbiota transplants, but there's such like a hot new treatment technique. There's a lot of discussion of using them to treat obesity, metabolic syndrome, and all these problems. But um, so in addition to the fact that we're transferring the full fecal matter as opposed to a specific um, species or group of species, are there any other pitfalls that could be associated with fecal mi microbiota transplants that aren't being spoken about, at least in the, to the public? And are there any kind of bioethical questions that might come up? It seems like such a great cure-all solution that yeah. people might be kind of so excited about it and ignoring some of the potential pitfalls or strange questions that might come about. Right. So there is a lot of promise in fecal transplants, and they're being routinely done in certain diseases where it's uh, extremely efficacious, especially the C. diff colitis we just mentioned, and partly also because this is, can be a deadly disease. It's given in patients that fail lots of routine antibiotic treatments and have really horrible inflammation of the gut, and then it's very justified to to, to use this very effective treatment, but we don't know in many of these cases the long-term outcomes. And the problem is they may be cured by their colitis, but who knows, maybe they have Alzheimer's or certainly obesity or arthritis because of the new microbiome down the line. So we need to better understand the long-term effects. Um, in addition, it's become so wild that there's YouTube videos I heard where patients <laughs> perform themselves uh, fecal transplants at home, and I clearly don't recommend this because at least the fecal transplant should be defined because also there are caveats where, for instance, that not wasn't done at home but in an institution where a very young donor of a young child of a um, father was, was uh, giving the microbiome to her dad, and, and it, it called, caused fulminant colitis, so the opposite of the initial hope. So there's a lot we still do need to understand what age of the microbiome to transfer, what is spe specific communities, and importantly, what other dark matters in there, like uh, certain viruses or fungi that we usually don't test for. So there is a lot to still learn, but it is very promising. In Europe, they're even trying it for obesity now and have... I think positive results uh, coming out of studies, I think in Belgium, where even metabolic syndrome can be improved with these transplants. But speaking of ethical problems, so there is this um, fascinating 
um, line of work on um, neuropsychiatric diseases and, and personality, even like anxiety can be transmitted in a from a mouse strain that's anxious. If you take the microbiome of this mouse, transfer it into a calm mouse strain, that mouse gets anxious and vice versa. So there are certain personality traits that may actually be changing by uh, transplanting a microbiome. And thinking of that, that's a huge ethical um, dilemma, which we haven't addressed yet. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting, too, because now there um, there's been some associations between kind of antibiotic treatment and predisposition to depression and changes in personality after antibiotic treatment. So it's a direct link to the microbiota and kind of the mystery around it. And yeah, I agree. I think the the basic research is coming out at such a high speed that it must be hard to translate it to the the clinic at the same rate. But so many people are so excited that kind of are trying to DIY fecal transplants to fix something or other, and then without considering the consequences of it, it could be really dangerous. And they get this anecdotal evidence too, like, oh, it worked for this person, and so it might work for me too. And there's, I think there's a big risk in, in that as well. There yeah. are risks, and still I think the hype is in many ways good for the field because it always may help convince the government to support this with funding. It's all very <laughs> expensive, this microbiome research, especially if you go to mice that are germ-free. This are very... Uh, difficult studies to do that cost a lot of money. So it's good if the public is behind it, but it's important that the scientists and doctors working in this field make sure that the public doesn't go uh, over the border and, and um, harm themselves by ex excessively using transplants, for instance. Um, so I actually wanted to talk a little bit about the, the articles that were in this issue. Um, one of them that stood out a lot to me was uh, uh, by... The authors Alexander Adami and Sonali Bracken, um, and it's it was a review on the connection between asthma and the microbiome. And so my brother has asthma, and it, so this was particularly interesting to me. Um, and one of the things that stood out was that there's this inverse relationship between exposure to certain bacteria and asthma, and that this is particularly notable in children that are raised on farms and how they have a lower incidence of asthma. And so I was just kind of wondering if you thought exposure to these microbes later in life would have any effect on that, um, or if that could change, you know, your diagnosis with asthma or anything like that. Yeah, that's another great area. And that's one of the original areas in the microbiome field because of the so-called hygiene hypothesis that basically states the cleaner you get, the more um, allergies develop. And there's a big part, of course, that uh, we know from helminth infections from worms that have protected large parts of the African population in Africa from allergies that we are devoid of because we, we eradicated worms. But also with the microbiome, the changes in the Western societies led to an increase in allergic diseases because of this dysbiosis. And growing up in the farm somehow um, exposes young children to the right maturing uh, signals from not only microbiota but also some you know, bacterial products that are ar around them in the farm that allows them to not develop allergies. In terms of adults that uh, are at risk and then move to the farm, there's not that much known. I just uh, know of one study, a clinical study, where there was a clear association that those that went and became farmers later in life were still more protected than, um, than those that, that live in the cities. Um, but these are association studies. There's some interesting... Uh, animal studies that mechanistically provided insight. Um, one is with H. pylori, the famous bug that the Australians discovered causes gastritis. It interestingly also protects against, uh, on the other hand, uh, protects against asthma. <clears throat> and in a mouse model, it was shown that, yes, in the neonatal pe period, when you get colonized, 
with this bacterium, you are more protected. But also in adulthood, um, colonization with H. pylori um, prevented uh, asthma symptoms. So there's a hope that it's not only all in the neonatal period or in the infant period, but also later in life that manipulating microbiome and allergic diseases may be beneficial. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like going back to DIY treatments, um, there was, a, I think it was a couple years back, there was a guy on NPR or something who was talking about how he like ordered um, bugs or some sort of worms or like went to some country that had a prevalence of these parasitic infections. And he specifically went to get it infected to cure, I think he had IBD. Um, and then there was this flurry of him selling his worms on the internet to people. And it was kind of it was very peculiar and clearly not ethical at all or nothing that I would ever recommend to anyone. But um, it was interesting because you don't, again, going back to you don't really know what's in someone, what's inside of someone when you transplant, um, kind of this interaction between parasites and the microbiome and then how that relationship then influences our bodies. I think that's a very interesting field and really kind of combines the fields of microbiology, immunology, developmental biology, parasitology, it's kind of, we're basically a whole Venn diagram at this point. <laughs> yeah, they're all very interdisciplinary, these studies. And the worm studies, as also with the microbiome transplants, they often, unfortunately, are used by the public without guidance. But there are formal trials, as far as I know, ongoing, where a certain pig worm that's not usually pathogenic to humans is being tried in patients with inflammatory bowel disease as a beneficial treatment often. So we're talking about, you know, different kinds of bugs and something that we haven't really talked about a lot in this in this issue is or in this podcast so far is the the virome. And so a piece in our current issue was written by a graduate student in the immunobiology department, uh, Michael Parker, and he focuses on the bio, the virome. The um since the bacterial microbiome has been the main topic of our our study so far, primarily for technological reasons. Um, as we define the virome more, do you predict the same large-scale effects with virome depletion as we do with the bacterial microbiome? And do you think that the interplay between the virome and the bacterium to be important? Yes, to all of your questions. I mean, it's a pretty unexplored area, and as you pointed out, uh, even harder to study. Um, but we have to see how much um, the virome is malleable compared to the microbiome. There are some studies, of course, already out there suggesting the diet changes the virome even quicker than the uh, microbiome, but um, we need lots more um, experiments and research to understand the virome. It is clear that it may play a role um, in, in various diseases. It has been studied in inflammatory bowel disease, in humans even, where the whole my virome in the gut was, was um, um, essentially explored as well as the microbiome at the same time. And interestingly, as we know nowadays for a lot of chronic diseases, the diversity of the microbiome is restricted. Uh, for the virome, at least in inflammatory bowel disease, it was the opposite. So a more diverse virome went along with disease uh, while the microbiome was more contracted. So perhaps there's some interaction between the microbiome restricting the virome from expanding, but that's speculation. Uh, we need more mechanistic studies that look at very specific either bacteriophages or viruses and the microbiota, like Laura Hooper, for instance, is doing, studying very specific phages um, and, and their effect on certain bacteria. And then the effect on the host, which itself is, again, complex. And, and then there are not only these viruses in the gut or in the bacteria, but also in the host, of course. Um, not only viruses we are familiar with, like Epstein-Barr virus, who often can be pathogenic, but many of us are 
actually infected without, uh, with it without causing disease. But also there's endogenous retroviruses sitting in our genomes, and that's a whole new area that's heavily studied uh, by many in the field. Yeah, so I guess I kind of, um, kind of going back to uh, developmental, the, the link between the development of various organ systems and the microbiome. Um, so there have been kind of with the advancement of medicine, there's a lot of babies that are born prematurely. Um, and so the micro, their microbiomes are introduced to them well before, I guess, their bodies would expect it to be. Do you think that like, there is a problem with this? Has there been a link between kind of microbiome-associated diseases in premature children or children born prematurely? Yes. So um, there's a big research uh, focused on a disease called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a very bad inflammation of the gut in neonates that are born too early. And there are some early studies supporting that the certain microbes colonizing these immature babies are driving this colitis as well, just like the inflammatory bowel disease we know nowadays in, in adults. So yes, it, it matters. And the microbiome itself is an organ, as we discussed earlier, so it has to mature as well. But also, of course, the host uh, that um, you know, provides the niche uh, is very different at each developmental state, and it may make a difference when a microbiome colonizes a host. So do you think that perhaps premature babies will start being kind of, I know they're already put into chambers to kind of help support their life, um, but do you think it would be beneficial for them to be put into kind of a cleaner chamber that, or somehow be given antibiotics, although that would also be, be risky, but kind of minimize um, the introduction of the microbiome early and then kind of work um, and develop kind of first microbiome kind of conglomerates of bacteria that then can be introduced kind of at their full term. Yeah, that's an interesting idea uh, to wait until full term or when they are born uh, prematurely, maybe giving the right mixture of microbiome or probiotic at that stage, mm -hmm. avoiding these bad pathobionts that are thought currently to drive necrotizing enterocolitis or other diseases in neonates. So these are good thoughts. I don't think anyone has studied that particular um, aspect yet, but it would be important. Has anyone uh, studied maybe administering the microbiome to children who have been born by C-section or things like that at all? I don't know, maybe, but there are these interesting studies clearly showing that the microbiomes in the gut, at least, uh, of newborns that are born by C-section are, are quite different from uh, vaginal delivery. Um, and in fact, the, the microbiome in both cases, mim mimics the microbiome from the mom, but in C-section, uh, it mimics the skin microbiome of the mom, while uh, in, in vaginal delivery, the, um, the gut microbiome. It does level out, as far as I know, uh, when they follow these kids uh, for longer periods, that the gut microbiome signature of the mom predominates after, even after C-section. But there are epidemiological studies that associate also C-section with certain disease states later in life, like allergies and colitis. But I think these are more trends, not strong associations, but there's also a field around that area. Wow. I feel like there's so much known in this field, and there's so many studies coming out and so many connections. But what we actually know, I think with every discovery, we figure out that we don't know kind of a million more things. And it's kind of this snowball effect of yeah. excitement, yet kind of disbelief at how much we don't understand Right. I mean, it's, it's in general, it's science. The more we know, the little we know, because every, with every new discovery, there's new questions, and the microbiome is the best example because it's so complex. 
But it is so useful still because in the old days we all knew that animal models didn't work in one um, animal in one um, laboratory versus another or on one coast versus the other coast. And now we have much better understanding that it's due to these differences in the microbiome. And that's why reductionist approaches are very useful where we go to germ-free mice that don't have any microbes and add single microbes at a time. It's impossible to do in humans, but that vein of research is very informative. At the same time, there's papers coming out saying that, of course, the um, mouse models we study are also still artificial because they are not infected by any bacteria or, or viruses from the outside. So there's also a, a, a push to study more natural um, environments uh, which is hard, but you would want to, on one hand, have your mice run around in your kitchen and in the wild and study them, as well as go very reductionist and study models where you have no microbes at all and add back single microbes at a time. But no matter how complex uh, it is and confusing sometimes all these new findings are in the media, it, it, it does advance our field, every study, and we learn more and more and understand better and better the complexities. With these kind of wild mice, um, uh, there, I know there have been studies into kind of microbiome of lab mice versus wild mice, um, but would it be kind? Of, I guess would it be beneficial for lab mice to have the microbiomes of wild mice? So, say, create a colony of lab mice um, from germ-free mice, but just colonize them with wild microbiomes, um, and would that be helpful? Would would their microbiomes eventually return to kind of a more lab setting because of the consistency of the food that they eat kind of, um, and things like that? Yeah, that's actually an interesting idea. I think that would be useful to take more um, diverse uh, outbred microbiomes uh, from the wild and colonize germ-free mice and have a new model of sort of more environmental influences. But it also will for sure, after several generations, be also restricted and just focused on this certain setting of environment. Um, maybe in that case it's really best to then start studying humans, which many groups do, including mine as well, but there's the complication of all these environmental factors that change. So if you go back to humans, what we do, we, we study their diets at each time point. We sample them, we ask all the medications they take and all of the environmental factors that could matter. The best there would be to study twins, but to get back to your question about mouse models, yes, I think that would be a good approach, um, but I think they're all going to be models in the end, and we need to go back and forth between humans and, and models. You can't really make germ-free humans. <laughs> no, I mean, unfortunately, in the old days, there were these uh, immunodeficient patients that we nowadays can treat with, with gene therapy or transplants, the so-called bubble boys uh, that had um, um, gene defects that made them highly immunodeficient, and they were living for several years in bubbles, and um, they were essentially germ-free humans, and nobody studied or ever thought of studying any introduction of microbes, but... I'm sure that some of the problems they had in these bubbles are not only due to their gene defect, but also the lack of immune maturation from no microbiomes. Yeah, I feel like living in a bubble would not be would not be very much fun. Is there is there a potential to use the microbiome to treat patients that are immunodeficient and kind of maybe give them bugs that would somehow aid in battling maybe bacterial infections or viral infections that they're particular, particularly susceptible to? Um, is it known uh, that there are commensals that directly interact with a pathogen, maybe supplementing them with, or I guess mice initially, of course, but supplementing kind of a good bug that could battle a bad bug, um, kind of 
in place of an immune system. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. The problem is still the gene defect will always mm -hmm. be there and that particular immune deficiency. Um, but yes, you could envision that if they are prone to certain infections, like which is not a typically an infection of immune deficiency, C. diff colitis we discussed earlier. We know now certain bugs that could kick out C. diff from the niche. So you could, if you give some kind of probiotic to patients that were susceptible to this disease, uh, they could potentially be protective. Uh, protected. And um, in, in animal studies, we know some other microbiome communities or specific good commensals that could protect against salmonella infection and others. So one con could envision that. But um, another aspect of your question would be to give certain microbes that induce immune maturation of another arm of the immune system that's not affected by the gene defect. So that's also a possibility. But, but with these rare monogenetic diseases, I think uh, fixing the gene defect is still the best uh, way to go forward, and that's what's happening in the genome field. And um, that always should be, you know, kept in mind that with all the hype on the microbiome, we should not forget about the host predisposition and the genetics, which may um, be a, a hurdle for some of the microbiome therapies. And to give you one example, it's well established now by a group in Japan that if you give certain microbes, uh, from humans in a mouse model that is germ-free, you can induce so-called regulatory T-cells, very beneficial T-cells that suppress inflammation. And there's now a company in Boston or Cambridge um, that tries to commercialize this and give this then eventually to patients with autoimmune diseases. It's very promising and sounds exciting, but my concern is that if some of these patients have genetic defects that we know from genome-wide association studies, in, in, in their T-Rex that are not functioning as they should. Perhaps these bacteria then make things worse in the worst case because they tip the balance to these bad T-cells that uh, you know develop because of the T-Rex genetic uh, um, altering. Yeah, so it'd be a little scary to have these kind of like popularized yogurt with kind of probiotics and things like that and immune stimulatory yogurt. I don't know, it yeah. seems like a scary aspect it, of this. It, yeah, it depends. I mean, there may be some very broad beneficial effects that could really be, you know, really useful for a broad aspect of the population. But uh, I think the microbiome is a classic example of personalized medicine, whereas the NIH likes to put it uh, lately, the precision medicine approach, where you really need to more and more understand not only the genetics of your patients, but also your microbiomes. And then it's a combination of those that, that may be important to decide on the specific treatment for someone. I think that's where it's in the end will We'll, we'll, we'll be heading where you give your stool sample, your skin microbiome sample to your doctor. You give your blood sample, of course, and your, you know, maybe a mouth swab for genetics. And then you have your whole genome sequence maybe in a decade from, I mean, you already do it now for $1,000 or less. And also your microbiome will probably be sequenced on a routine basis in the office at some day. And then you combine those huge data sets and try to um, personalize a certain treatment uh, based on these information. Yeah, I feel like that would be really helpful, especially in drugs where you see kind of discrepancies in the effect from one patient to another. Um, and I'm sure it's genetic and microbiome related. So eliminating kind of broad treatment, like broad brushstroke treatment would be great for for everyone, I guess. Everyone would benefit from it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so how would... So would that also help kind of in vaccine development and kind of understanding who should get what vaccine, if it is kind of a, a vaccine that you don't necessarily need to have on a continual, on an annual basis, for example, like the flu um, and things like that. So should we be concerned about what vaccines we're getting or kind of should our um, knowledge of the microbiome influence vaccine development? And 
Yeah, maybe. Um, so vaccines are very important, you know, a major milestone in modern medicine. But uh, there is also different responsiveness in the population, just like for any medication. And some work, uh, I think, from Emory University showed that the um, microbiota are important for a good response to influenza vaccine. And uh, it suggests this type of work that perhaps you shouldn't give antibiotics at the time of certain vaccines. All these details need to be figured out, but the whole concept that it may also be important to know your microbiome status or any exposure to antibiotics that may cause disruption at the time of vaccination, uh, that, that I think is something emerging in the field. Yeah, I think it's the interaction between viral infections and the microbiome so interesting. There seems to be some viruses that if you take antibiotics before, such as with flu or with the flu vaccine, that you're more susceptible and, um, or you're, yeah, you're more susceptible to the infection after taking antibiotics. Um, but there's some where if you take antibiotics, the virus isn't able to replicate. So there's kind of both relationships are there. Either the microbiome is helping its host or the microbiome is helping the virus, unfortunately. And I think that it would be really great to know which one's which so that you don't accidentally take kind of antibiotics before flu vaccine or getting the flu or maybe taking antibiotics to help a viral infection so that they don't have kind of the crutch of the vi uh, uh, microbiome. Yes, yes. I think these are great ideas to think through and these are sort of thought experiments. But at this point, I still think we should trust our even primary care doctors mm -hmm. to just prescribe the antibiotics they think they're needed and, um, you know, go from there. But there are probably... In the future, certain settings where we may uh, avoid even certain antibiotics during an infection that is even bacterial. So there's a lot to learn. But I always want to remind, uh, given all the hype that we just discussed, that we still would want to follow the traditional current recommendations for any of these antibiotics and certainly vaccinations. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I've always kind of had a curious curiosity kind of about pets and the human microbiome. And so, like, does having – so with, with cats, there's this kind of Toxoplasma gondii um, problem where uh, with, with humans who get it, there could be some kind of psychological, psychiatric disturbances um, and could impact um, pregnant women, especially if they're, they're children. But have there been studies looking into um, how having any sort of pet, um, dog, cat, Durable. Um, I'm assuming fish won't affect your microbiome as much as mm -hmm. these bigger, uh, bigger animals. In the tank. Yeah, unless you're <laughs> <laughs> closely interacting with your fish. Um, but is it beneficial health-wise to have pets? Um, is it kind of like this farm example where you're kind of exposed to more bacteria, more dirt, kind of, uh, and so your immune system's more prompted? I don't. Yeah, this is another great question. I mean, it's, as with many things in the microbiome, a double-edged sword, because, uh, first of all, the example of toxoplasma you gave, transmitted by cats, that's a real pathogen. It's a pathogenic parasite that can cause real problems in pregnancy. Um, and then there's these interesting links with changing even your, your brain function. But um, in terms of the microbiome, we don't know yet the clinical implications, but uh, we do know from some studies in the field that you do inherit some of your microbiome from your pet. So there were studies where dog owners were studied and their, their, their dog's microbiome as well as the dog owner's microbiome, and there are similarities supporting that there's transmission between the pet's uh, microbiome and, and the owner's. 
what that means for any disease state, nobody knows to my knowledge, but it's possible that it's also beneficial in a way. It's well known that having pets is good for your mood, for your psychology. There's now even some hospitals that bring pets to children's wards. So there's many good things about them and maybe also their microbiomes, who knows? But that part is not yet known about disease states. It is known that we are uh, impacted by also animal microbiomes. That'd be so cool to have like a a prescription from your doctor saying that you have to go play with some dogs and just take the day off work, go to a dog park and hang out with dogs. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is fascinating to think about it. But we should never forget there are also uh, animal transmitted diseases. Mm -hmm. And and for instance, turtles can uh, really transmit salmonella infections and other animals, other diseases. So it's always a balance between first knowing all the bad infections, getting rid of them, and then dealing with the side effect of changing of your microbiome and rather adding back the good box or learning about the microbiome that way than, of course, disregarding very deadly diseases. Uh, just like playing in the dirt, we always say nowadays it's good for infants, and it clearly is, but we still have the dangerous um, bacteria like Clostridium tetani that can cause tetanus, which we can now vaccinate nowadays against. But if it's picked up in the dirt, in the wound, um, and you're not vaccinated, you can die from it. So we should just not forget about it. But clearly, learning which what we're missing now after too much hygiene is, is really another important part in our society. You should still wash your hands, but it's okay to play in the dirt. Really. Yes. Well, it depends. In the hospital, it's very important. And we all do this too little in the hospital. All physicians, there's big initiatives to improve hand hygiene because there are all these sick patients and they're very vulnerable. But in the general public, we probably use too much Perel and, and cleaning that has no clear indication. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious back to the, the dogs, whether kind of we talked um, in our last podcast and you just mentioned the kind of transfer of personality and anxiety from one mouse strain to another. Um, and I and I wonder whether therapy dogs or dogs that are brought into the hospital, which have been cleared of um, kind of they've been tested for infections and things like that, whether their microbiome composition that kind of has this calm effect, because usually the dogs that are brought in are very calm and very gentle and not very jumpy, kind of used to the hubbub of a hospital, um, whether they kind of have a calming or anti-anxiety microbiome that might be might be transferred, not transferred, but kind of maybe transferred even, or whether kind of the calming bacteria in one species would still be calming in another, um, or whether like pathogens, um, some can infect one species and can't affect or infect another. That's an interesting, almost wild idea. I think it's interesting to think about, but I think the few hours that a dog is, for instance, in a leukemia ward with small children and goes to the next room is, is not enough to probably do much in terms of microbiome transfers. But we are just very social uh, human beings, and uh, we grew up with animals throughout uh, ancestry, and that uh, is one reason why it's calming to us to be around pets, which I think is the main reason why it helps in, in these circumstances. But who knows? Maybe there's an immediate transfer of some microbial products through the breath from a dog that matters. But that's now getting into wild speculation. Yeah. No, I feel like there's uh, the use of animals in a clinic is so is so fascinating because, as you said, we've been in these interactions for so long, just like with our microbiomes that, yeah, like cats being used for uh, like heart therapy because they're apparently their purring is at the right kind of wavelength to mm. help with cardiac function. I don't know. I know this that. is what I've, yeah, this is what I've been told. Maybe it's just an excuse for me to get another cat, but I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, this is just exactly what I need to hear to uh, go adopt a dog. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not only man's best friend, but also like 
man's beneficial for my health yeah exactly (laughs) yeah i feel like maybe adoption like pet adoption agencies will maybe start using that once the field is a little bit more advanced like it's healthy to have a dog not only will you get outside and run but your microbiome might be in a safe place (laughs) maybe (laughs) Is there anything else to add? I don't know. We have the wrap-up, but that's the only question. Yeah. There's no more questions. Yeah, is there anything else that you kind of want to kind of want to go through or inform the public of? And um, Not really. We didn't touch much upon diet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's But that's let's another, go. you know, it takes <laughs> too long. But the bottom line is there's still a lot of knowledge to be gained. But clearly the microbiome can be changed with your diet, and maybe not persistently, but if you eat your diet – on a routine basis, you could. And that's another potential we didn't touch upon besides all these other interventions like fecal transplants and antibiotics and vaccinations. Yeah, so when people go on on diets, kind of going back to personalized or targeted medicine, will will the diets that uh, doctors could prescribe to their patients be defined or outlined by their microbiome? And, Absolutely. Yeah. The problem is just it's very hard to change someone's diet. People have yeah, tried this for centuries, <laughs> and all these weight loss diets don't work. So uh, we're trying ourselves in my lab to figure out which microbes are changed through the diet and then maybe work again through the microbes on beneficial effects. But if you could uh, change everyone's habits, uh, how how someone eats a certain bad diet or a good diet, that would be ideal. Yeah, I feel like lab mice are a little bit easier to manipulate their diet. You never know what will happen once a patient leaves the hospital. Right. Yeah. And with the microbes, as we mentioned, I think in the last episode, it's very much a chicken and egg sort of scenario. Yeah. Yeah, you never know whether the The, accumulation of one bug leads to a certain phenotype or changing your diet um, would change the bacteria, which then could alter your weight and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very interesting. It'll be very interesting to see how they work that out. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's a very much a hype in the news of Oh, the the lean mice have this the like floration of this bug. The obese mice have a lot of this bug. Oh, in order to be lean, you just take this one bug, and then you're magically cured. But yeah, I feel like the increased public knowledge of kind of what yeah. we've talked about interactions between microbiota, interactions between diet and microbiota. That yeah, it's complicated. I mean, it is true that obesity can be transmitted. Uh, through your microbiome. That was shown by Jeff Gordon's mm-hmm. group. But which microbes specifically to transfer? And the most important is how to transfer them so they stick is still very much unknown. Because if you just eat a yogurt or take a certain bug, it doesn't mean at all that it stays in your in your system, in addition to the different host responses we discussed earlier based on the own genetics of a certain host. Yeah. Are there, would there be techniques, are there techniques that already exist or are there techniques that are being developed to target um, localizing a particular bug to a particular location in the atten- intestine so that it doesn't have to go through kind of our gastric system, potentially be damaged by the acidity of our stomach, or kind of so making sure that it goes to the particular niche in which the particular bug would best live. Yeah. Well, the bugs themselves know their niche, but the niche is often taken. So except if it's a neonate, as we discussed earlier, when they're born without... Uh, the microbiome in place, um, you would need antibiotics or some other ways to clean up that niche. And um, that's being done partly in these fecal transplants where you clean out the gut and then give the microbiome or specific microbes. But that's a whole huge area of where we need improved knowledge and, and more experiments. 
Yeah. So I guess the general message is we know a lot, but there's a lot more to do. Correct. Yeah. And that wraps up another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to check out our September 2016 issue on the microbiome. Join us soon in our third podcast of our series on the microbiota, where we'll be speaking with Dr. Camille Konopnicki, a postdoctoral researcher in the lab of Andrew Goodman, who was our colloquium speaker in conjunction with our issue on the microbiome. His talk was called The Causes and Consequences of Microbiome Variation, and Dr. Konopnicki d- conducted the research discussed. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM in the podcast. Thank you to Philip Kearney and the rest of the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to our editors-in-chief, Tamaki Sasaki and Yasmin Zakinyaz, and the rest of the YJBM staff. We are produced and written by Helen Balenson, Erica Gorenberg, and Ali Kuhlman. And a special thank you again to Dr. Kriegel for joining us today. Thanks for having me. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. If, and if you'd like to contact us, email us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. As always, feel free to tell us your thoughts by leaving comments or questions. You can also listen to us and share our podcast on SoundCloud. See you next month for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.